Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Today's guest is Pamela McCordick, an author of books and articles on the history and cultural implications of artificial intelligence. She's also a published novelist. Hi, Jim. Great to be here. Great to hear your voice. <laughs> Great to hear your voice again, too. It's been too long. I read my uh, first book by Pamela B.A., i.e. before Amazon, so I don't have the exact date. You know, regular listeners of this show know that I will often have looked up in my Amazon order history and get the date of when I read specific books, or at least bought, and they're usually pretty close. But I actually bought one of Pamela's books way back yonder, The Fifth Wave. Oh, it's the fifth generation. Oh, fifth generation. Oh, you're right. If you bought it when it was published, that would have been 1983. It was probably a little, but in that time frame, that was when I was in Boston for sure. So between 83 and 86. And it was, you know, basically talking about mostly a major Japanese attempt to achieve a great leap forward in AI using logic programming, particularly the prologue language. And interestingly, uh, reading that book caused me to go out and learn prologue. And I play with it a little bit on and off, but I eventually came away with the view, which I've held to this day, that uh, logic programming approaches to you know high-end AI inevitably run into big problems, what's called the combinatoric explosion. Too many ways to parse the logic. Yeah. And you need to add in heuristics or something else to prune the tree. So I eventually, you know, quickly actually lost interest in prologue and made the assumption probably the Japanese are going to fail at this. And they did. But it was uh, it was really an interesting book and it was one of the first things I read about AI. So that was that's very interesting. Today, we're mostly going to talk about Pamela's new book titled, This Could Be Important, My Life and Times with the Artificial Intelligentsia. I'd describe it as a blend of personal memoir, a rough history of the earlier days of AI, some amazing profiles of leading personalities from the period, some very interesting musings on the relationships between science, technology, and the humanities, and it's a love story. You know, regular listeners know that I uh, talk to authors about the books fairly regularly, and I usually play it fairly straight. But this time I'm going to just say it straight out, people. You should buy this book. This is an unusually excellent book. Uh, it doesn't fit into any known genre, so I'm sure it dr- will be driving her publisher nuts on how to market it. But the writing is truly beautiful. Pamela has exceeded herself. This is the best of her books I've ever read in terms of uh, wordsmanship. The way she blends the personal, the historic, the personalities, musings, the love story, it's brilliant. So not only should you read this book, but if you like it as much as I do, you should tell your friends to read it too. It's available on a- no money past hands between us. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is and you know my listeners know I don't usually say stuff like this, right? I play it pretty straight, just uh, talking to the authors about their book. But this one really got me, and I got to say, you've exceeded yourself on this one, Pamela. Thank you. I can see a huge amount of uh, both love and work went into creating this thing. This, this is a unusually excellent book. Thank you. Thank you. As my listeners know, I don't normally carry on this way, but I figured I sort of had to, to be honest, because the book was so good. Let's start off with what I at least took away as your theme, sort of a recurring theme. It's woven all through the book. In fact, you start off with it right from the beginning. I would describe it as an exploration by you of C.P. Snow's two cultures and how it relates to the history of AI. Now, many of our listeners are probably young enough. They have no idea who C.P. Snow was or what the uh, general outline of his two cultures argument was. So maybe you could start us with that. Be happy to. Uh, C.P. Snow, Sir Charles Percy Snow, was a, a scientist and academic in England. And in the mid 20th century, it occurred to him and he wrote about the fact that the scientists and the humanists never talked to each other. And he was in a unique position because not only was he a scientist, but he was also a novelist. He wrote a series of novels called Strangers and Brothers, which are a very interesting read even today because they talk about how mathematicians and scientists played an enormous role in World War II, especially in winning it for the Allies. So he thought, this is terrible. These people should be speaking to each other. 
And furthermore, he went on to note that humanists described culture as what they were interested in and nothing else counted, which was, uh, you know, kind of arrogant of them. And he said, this can't go on. We've got to come to some synthesis. Well, in this period, it's really hard to explain what an explosive idea this was. And I sat there as an undergraduate listening to him give this lecture, and I was almost out of my seat. I was just so excited by this because I had been interested in science, but I was an English major. And I had switched between the two, you know, should I be a science major? Should I be an English major? And finally decided to stick with English for, uh, yeah, because I loved it. Anyway, this made an explosion around the cultural world, especially the Anglo-American world. But also the book was, it, it became a book finally. It was translated into many languages. So this was a chasm that needed to be crossed. And Snow put his finger on it. Boy, did he make the humanities mad. Boy, did they get mad. We are culture. <laughs> yeah, and you tell lots of stories along the way, which we'll get to, about how they tried to wreak their revenge, right? <laughs> yeah. Switching back to the uh, memoir, the bio, your own personal autobiography side, uh, you were born in England. And, and I think you said you were born, your mother was giving birth in a tent while bombs were falling from the Blitz. Yes, right. Well, she was in a hospital, but there was a tarpaulin between her and the night because that wall had been blown away by a bomb. Close enough to being born in a tent. So then what happened? How did you get across the big ditch? <laughs> My father, in fact, was in the RAF and he was stationed in Canada. So while my mother and I were in England being bombed on in the Blitz, he was in Canada teaching airmen how to navigate. He came down to the United States to visit cousins in the New York area. And he wrote to my mother and said, after the war, we're going to America. And that's essentially what happened. And how old were you then? You must have been uh, this was right after the war, so 1946. I, was, I had just turned six. And my twin brother and sister, their twins, not me, were just two. That was uh, quite amazing. And you, and you landed in New York originally, but then you ended up in California fairly That's quickly. Right. Uh, work took him to California, and I, I essentially grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. It sounds like that's always been a place that's had a resonance for you. Always. Yeah, one uh, passage I saw in the book, you mentioned living in the uh, Skylanda area. Yes, and the reason that struck me is, you know, I've never lived in California, but I've spent a tremendous amount of time visiting there, hitchhiking around in my younger days, hanging out, being a troublemaker. And I love that area. You know, I love down on La Honda Road. I love Skyline. I've always been curious why that area was not more popular. At least last time I prowled around there, maybe 10 years ago, it was still fairly countrified up there. Yes, and people were more happy living down cheek by jowl and Mountain View or what have you. But what a wonderful place that is, right? Oh, it is. It was wonderful. But, you know, there were problems. Uh, there's no water supply. There was in those days no, no gas supplies. So we had to have our gas bottled with the tank. We had a septic tank. We had a water break at least once a month where I had to crawl hand over hand over the hillside to find the break and fix it. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of time to live in the country. Oh, yeah. I live on a farm, so I we have all those things to deal with. We have a well, we have a septic tank, we have gas, and you know, we even have to have a generator because it's not infrequently that the power goes down for a day or two. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, not everyone's willing to put up with that. Of course, you can take the back roads down to the ocean, too, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Often. Yeah, very, very, very wonderful. So then, how did you happen to make the connection into the AI world? Oh, that was easy. That same undergraduate who sat absolutely breathless listening to C.P. Snow talk about the two cultures was approached. Let me put it this way. I was working my way through college, and I was a typist. I typed for the school of business. I guess they figured, you know, she doesn't know anything about this. True. She can type exams. She can type course outlines and so on and so forth, which I did. It was wonderful. Anyway, two young assistant professors came to me and they said, 
we know you're going to graduate in January, which was true, 1961, January 61, and you're going to go to graduate school the following fall. How about working on our book in the meanwhile? And I said very enthusiastically, yes, I will. What's it about? And they said, artificial intelligence. Now, Jim, I had heard the term, but I did not know what really what it was. And so I said to one of the guys, could you explain that, please? And he said, artificial intelligence is a machine doing things which if a human did them, we'd say, that's intelligent behavior. Okay. So that's how I got into AI. And listeners, that was 1961. Well, the conversation took place in 1960. So it's like the dawn of AI. I mean, the original dawn of what we call AI was what, 1950? When was was the meeting at Dartmouth? 55, 56? That was 1956. Right. So uh, I don't think the term artificial intelligence even existed before 1956. It did not. So this was at the very, very beginning. And who were the uh, two authors you worked with? A man named Julian Feldman, who later went on to UC Irvine. But the other author was uh, Edward Feigenbaum. And that led to what has been a lifetime friendship. I was just in touch with him two days ago and at a party at his house a week ago. We have been good, close friends ever since. In fact, we even co-authored a couple of books together later on. Yes, including that uh, fifth generation book that I mentioned when we first came on. Another quote I saw in the book, you talked about uh, word and text understanding is a particular interest of mine, meaning yours. Could you tell us more about that? I mean, it does seem kind of natural being a word person and interested in AI. Well, that's really all it is. I've been interested in words since I could speak and later on read. So when I came across scientists who were interested in word and text understanding, oh, they captured me, of course. And of course, that's still a very controversial field. You know, the I just finished reading uh, the book by Gary Marcus, Rebooting AI, and he's going to be on the show in a few weeks. And he demonstrates, at least to his own satisfaction, and I think it uh, satisfied me as well, that the current deep learning approaches, you know, used like for Google for their translate program, et cetera, and some of these new text writing programs from OpenAI are really a very long way away from really understanding text in a way that humans do. You know, so much of what we see are, especially from this new uh, big deep learning trend, is essentially very, very fancy statistical pattern matching. And it's interesting that we have not yet really achieved anything like text understanding. To my mind, that's the next frontier. It certainly is. And one of the projects I spend a lot of time writing about in the book is at MIT, a project that it takes a symbolic view, not a statistical view of what text is. But those guys say, hey, we are, you know, a kitty hawk here. We're nowhere near where we want to be. Yes, indeed. And I'm, I'm involved with some of those MIT folks, too. I'm on the Board of Visitors for the Brain and Cognitive Science Department at MIT. You know, people that you mentioned, like Tommy Poggio, Tenenbaum, you know, some of the others who are working on these symbolic type problems. Right. You know, they don't get the press that the West Coast people do. But I personally believe they're more likely to crack the actual language problem than the uh, deep learning people are. Well, I think one of the interesting things AI has shown us is that understanding is <laughs> is a spectrum, and shallow understanding can work pretty well for most things. Yeah, that's true. But what it doesn't work for, and this is where Marcus is very interesting, is like really understanding, for instance, the gestalt of a book, right? What is this book? You know, to be extract the theme of a book is something that uh, it's hard to see uh, statistical approaches, shallow approaches doing. And yet I just did it when I uh, introduced your book. I may have been wrong about the theme, but at least I did extract one. You did. And I agree. Um, I agree with Gary Marcus that we're a long way from human kinds of understanding of text and language. Yeah, the other person who I think is very interesting in this discussion is George Lakoff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, of course, makes the argument that language is 
way more metaphorical than we tend to recognize. You know, say, I'm moving ahead with this project. Well, ahead is, you know, metaphorical from the physical moving forward, right? Or I'm, on, I'm behind on uh, this project. Well, you know, behind is a metaphor from something that's behind you. And if you carefully parse your speech and look for metaphor, you go, oh my goodness, it's hard to ha- say two sentences without using metaphor. And again, you know, metaphor is something seemingly more subtle than, uh, you know, the statistical approaches are likely to get at. And without understanding metaphor and how it works, it may be that we'll have a hard time getting to real language understanding. I agree. Have you, uh, have you read any Lakoff? Oh, I know, George. Yes. Oh, you do? That's great. I never ha- I've never met him, but I have read a number of his works. And, you know, I just uh, think he's one of the most interesting you know, people working to say, hey, I might take you up on that and have you introduce me to him so I can get him on my show. Oh, he'd be a wonderful interviewee. Yes. I bet he would. Another item in the book, you talked about intelligent agents and you quoted a definition that basically said they have goals, form beliefs and action plans on how to reach their goals. And then they're adaptive. Does that feel like to you what intelligence really is? In a very abstract sense, yes. And that it would kind of draw a line, right? I mean, you know, where do, how far down does intelligence go? I mean, some people argue it goes all the way down to the bacteria. Yes, they do. And they can make that argument pretty well. And until we, ha- we can refine our notions of intelligence, which are not very fine-tuned right now, I have to say, yeah, you're probably right. Bacteria have intelligence. Slime molds have intelligence. Yep, they have problems. Uh, Whether they actually have goals or not, I don't know. But one could say that their goals are implicitly cooked in by evolution, right? Their goal is to survive and reproduce, essentially, right? Right. That is interesting. Probably the person that appears across the book the most is Herb Simon. He pops up again and again from early to later. I, I love the story when you're reading these business books, it seems like all the business uh, academic uh, work had been invented by Herb Simon. Then you go on to discover he's also an economist. Oh, and he's a cognitive scientist, etc. What was he like? How could a person be a giant in so many fields? What, what, what is a person like that like? He was an astonishing guy. Yes, the story you begin with is so true. I, I, this little typist in the business school, I keep running into this guy. Herb Simon at this, Herb Simon in municipal uh, governance, Herb Simon. And I think, God, this school of business is so shallow if this one guy appears in every field. So I blame business, not Herb. And um, later on, I am better acculturated into the culture of AI. That's with uh, two and a half years at Stanford. And I realize what a giant he is. Okay, next step. I'm married and go with my husband, who is named the chairman of the computer science department at uh, Carnegie Mellon, where Herb Simon is. And they have a big party, you know, welcome by the faculty to the new head kind of thing. And I stand there in front of Herb Simon. I'm so starstruck. I can't even say hello to him. I sort of, (laughs) it it was funny. Anyway, we became great friends. And one of the reasons we became great friends is because he used to walk home every night after work past our house. And I would just be putting the cover on my typewriter and I would see his hat, um, a beret in the summertime, uh, Chuuya, one of these Peruvian Chuuyas covering his head in the winter, bopping past my hedge. And I'd lean out the door and I'd say, hey, Herb. Would you like a sherry? And Herb would almost always like a sherry. So he'd come in and we'd sit down and we'd talk over sherry. And I didn't really understand how often we did this until I reviewed my journals for writing this book. This could be important. Holy mackerel, we were we were meeting once a week. I would have this genius, and he was a genius, and that's not a word I use lightly sitting at my coffee table and sharing sherry with me, and we would have a high old time, just laughing and going through this and that and the other. So one summer, I said to him, you know, it's really too bad. My students, I was teaching then at the University of Pittsburgh, my students have all the really interesting discussions. You know, what is life? What is the meaning of life? 
how can I live the good life, blah, blah. And what do my colleagues and I discuss? Well, should romantic poetry be two semesters or only one semester? How much can we spend on the Xerox machine? That kind of thing. And Herb laughed and he said, yes, I know. He said, you know, you might think of starting a little salon or a little discussion group. And that grew to something that met once a month. Uh, and I called it the Squirrel Hill Sages because we all lived in Squirrel Hill in those days. And it consisted of Herb Simon and his wife, Dorothea, Alan Newell and his wife, Noelle, uh, the novelist, Mark Harris. He was best known then for a book about baseball called Bang the Drum Slowly, his wife, a journalist, and Joe and me. And we met monthly to discuss things. And so Herb and I really got to know each other even better then. And that's how we became such good friends. What a wonderful experience in life, because from me being on the outside, having read a fair amount of Herb's work, you know, I put him up there as amongst the greatest polymaths of the 20th century. And he was a guy stopping in your living room, having a sherry and hanging out with the sages of Squirrel Hill. How lucky were you? How lucky was I? I actually had a graduate student stop me in the hall once at, somewhere in New York. I, it may have been Brooklyn Poly or someplace. He said, is it true that you had sherry with Herb Simon once a week? <laughs> I said, yeah, it's true. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm going to uh, flip forward here a little bit in my topics. And uh, let's talk about Pittsburgh a little bit. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons that resonates with me is my daughter happens to live in Pittsburgh. In fact, she lives in Squirrel Hill. And we've spent more and more time up there. And I, I think we overlapped uh, the summer of 1973 in Pittsburgh. I actually worked for the U.S. government as a summer job when I was an undergraduate. And, you know, I have had a pretty good reaction to Pittsburgh, but it didn't sound like you did. Yeah, I really have to make the distinction between Pittsburgh as it is now and Pittsburgh as it was then. In the early 1970s, Joe and I arrived there in 1971, the steel industry was just dying, and nobody knew where to go next. And a group of visionaries, mostly at Carnegie Mellon, said, we can green Pittsburgh. We can make Pittsburgh something different from an industrial giant, which they saw was coming to an end. I must say, most people in Pittsburgh did not see that. They thought this was just a bump. Steel would come back. Coal would come back. Well, no, it wasn't going to. So I was uh, a Californian, as you pointed out, and I rode around the Pittsburgh, the Western Pennsylvania area, thinking, how can people let places be so ugly? I mean, there were slag heaps that nobody bothered to remove. And downtown Pittsburgh and, and even close to Squirrel Hill, there were warehouses that were rusted out, steel mills that were rusted out, and nobody thought they should be torn down or needed to be torn down or, or could be bothered with them. This was astounding to me. So that was Pittsburgh then. That Pittsburgh now is a very different situation. Yeah, it is quite amazing how they have recovered, reinvented themselves as a technology and a medical area. As we know, Uber has their AI center there, a lot of robotics going on. Of course, CMU has been a big part of that renaissance. Absolutely. And uh, Google and lots and lots of spinoffs. In fact, one of the patterns I have noticed, you know, since we've been going up there three or four times a year, is that many of the Silicon Valley companies are opening non-trivial satellite operations in Pittsburgh. And I've ascertained that the reason why is that, you know, if you're living in Silicon Valley and you're a you know, 32-year-old engineer who married and wants to start a family, it's even if you're making big Google-type bucks, you're still not going to live very well in Silicon Valley. However, if you take those big Google bucks and move to a place like Pittsburgh, you can live like a king. And apparently that's what they're doing is they're providing opportunities for people who want to, you know, have a family, have kids, you know, have a house and a yard and those kinds of things and not have a two hour commute to be able to do it in a very commodious town of Pittsburgh. And there's literally now thousands of people from Apple and Google and Adobe and others that have, you know, have moved to Pittsburgh and operated out of these uh, satellite offices. And Pittsburgh itself is in a beautiful natural setting. It's hilly. There are three rivers that meet there, as 
any sports fan knows. It really is gorgeous. It was just badly done to in the 19th and early 20th century. Yeah, it was certainly, it was the uh, engine of the industrial age and it paid the price, right? On the flip side today, Pittsburgh has about half the population that it had in 1955, but those powerful and rich industrialists uh, invested heavily in museums and art galleries and one of the really great botanical gardens of the United States and, and parks, so beautiful parks. And so essentially it has the infrastructure for a city twice its size. So it's extremely rich in you know, cultural artifacts and, and organizations, which makes it kind of really interesting. Anyway, enough about Pittsburgh. No, I'm not on the payroll of the Pittsburgh uh, Chamber of Commerce, but I have gotten to like the place. Hopping back a little bit, you know, one of the very, really interesting things about your book is some rich and personal and evocative profiles of some of the uh, big names of early AI, guys like Alan Newell, John McCarthy, Marvin Minsky, Ed Feigenbaum, one I didn't know, Raj Reddy, and of course, Herb. I, I love those, but I would also say maybe that indicates that you have a perspective of a great man version of the story of AI. You think that's true? Are there really great men who are qualitatively deeper than most of the other people, or were they just at the right place at the right time? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> that's a chicken and egg problem. I was lucky to know these very great intellects. But would it have happened anyway? Yeah, it probably would have happened anyway. Because when you look around at papers in the 1940s, I'm talking about academic papers, Everybody has this muzzy kind of idea. Hey, I think this thing is kind of thinking, this computer thing. It's just that these guys took it and made something of it scientifically. Yep. Another one of the people who, in my mind, is an absolute giant of uh, computer science and AI, Alan Newell. Yes. T tell me a little bit about him. What was he like? Oh, Alan. <laughs> I, I should have been as in awe of Alan at that faculty party I mentioned as I was of her, but Alan didn't have quite the reputation that Herb did, at least in my mind. I was wrong, of course. Alan was an amazing guy. He was the son of a San Francisco physician, academic physician, I might say, and had been brought up in very comfortable circumstances and did not want to be a doctor like his dad, ended up uh, after college at the Rand Corporation doing uh, logistics and things like that. And then he met Herb Simon. And Herb and he discovered that neither of them wanted to use the computer as a, any kind of numerical calculator. They wanted to use it as a symbolic machine. And they were very much alone in that way. I don't mean totally alone. There were, of course, other people around the country who felt that way, a handful. And so these two together made a tremendous team. Alan himself was very cordial, very lovely, full of fun. Oh, my gosh. He, you know, he, he had a wonderful sense of humor. He was very affectionate and very, very hardworking. Oh, my you would get email from, well, email. We didn't call it email in those days. <laughs> we called it ARPA messages. But you would get messages from him at three in the morning because that's when he was working. Not that he'd quit. He'd been working since after supper. Really, really a lovely man. And he loved literature. So he and I often had talks about books we loved. And he and his wife, Noel, would read aloud to each other at night. And a couple of times I, I interrupted them for one reason or another. And uh, they were reading aloud. Okay, Pamela, what do you want? Go away. <laughs> wow. What an, amazing. Another one of the great brains from that era that you got to know pretty well. Now, you also got to know people in a more professional capacity through a quite important early book that you wrote called Machines Who Think. And now, one of the interesting things when I see that title is the word who. <laughs> yes. Tell me about that a little bit. I was writing the first modern history of artificial intelligence and, you know, casting around for a title as you do with books. Hey, what am I going to call this book so it'll leap off the shelf, blah, blah. And it was Joe Traub, my husband, who said, don't call it machines that thing. Call it machines who think. 
because we were both under the influence of the idea that the thinking that machines were doing and the thinking that humans were doing were very, very similar. And I must confess, I was also under the influence of Marvin Minsky, who called people meat machines, M-E-A-T machines. And I thought, yeah, machines who think we're all thinking. I thought that was very, very clever. That book had a little bit of a difficult history getting signed. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes, I had an agent, and my agent took the proposal to various publishers, and the replies were, in retrospect, absolutely hilarious. It was, we've already done a book on computers. Or, ah, oh, gee, interesting, too bad it's too late. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. Uh, and, and, oh, this is an interesting, is she kidding? Essentially, that was, is she kidding? And, you know, you could hardly blame them. Artificial intelligence was in a very nascent state at that point. But still, if authors are going to call themselves canaries in the coal mine, they need to pay attention to what's happening right now. And nobody wanted to do that. So, yeah, it went to 30-some publishers before it finally got signed by the publishing arm of Scientific American. And what year would that have been for our audience? It actually came out in 1979. But it was signed, what, 77 maybe? 77, 78, something like that, yeah. Still hard to imagine that, you know, 77, uh, you know, we had lots of computers out there that nobody in publishing was interested in a serious history of AI. Or, you know, you had to go to 36 of them before you found one to say yes. That's hard to believe. Even worse, in my view, historians of science weren't interested in the field. Can you think, can you believe that? That is amazing, right? wonder what things that are happening now that are going to be unbelievably important in the future that we are ignoring like this. Near them now, but I did ask one historian of science much later, where were you guys? And she said, oh, you know, we really didn't know if it would be important. <laughs> Another reason I named the book what it did. Interesting. I like that. Another interesting, really landmark historical event that you write about is, I don't believe you were there, but maybe you were, a Simon and Newell's logic theorist. This was the first working program to do something, which if humans did it, we'd say that's intelligent behavior. It was very much in the symbolic arm of AI. It wasn't, you know, it didn't look at tons of data. It wasn't machine learning. There was no such thing then. This was something figuring out what to do next by reason of reason, by using reason. And was able actually to improve upon some of the uh, earlier mathematical proofs by even quite famous mathematicians, as I recall. Yes, that's right. And interestingly, logicians, professional logicians, looked at it and they said, oh, well, you know, this isn't so hot. We can, we can create a machine that can do logic better than that. Completely missing the point that Newell and Simon weren't interested in creating a killer logic machine. They were interested in modeling human behavior. They were both cognitive psychologists. That was their mission. Yep, and it's uh, you know definitely an important milestone in the in the very earliest history. It's amazing how early it was. It was it was in the late fifties sometime, right? Yeah, fifty uh, six. They came to the Dartmouth conference with this working program. That's amazing. Back to two cultures again. Yeah. One of the little stories that, that leaped out to me that I suspect is strongly interwoven with the CP Snow's two cultures is you were not approved for tenure <laughs> when you came up for tenure at the University of Pittsburgh. Here you were a successful author, which had three books out at that point, get a contract for another perhaps. And, you know, I'm sure that scene must have struck you as particularly odd at the time. How much do you think the, uh, the two cultures problem was part of that? Oh, I think it was very much a two cultures problem because tenured decisions are usually, uh, they're supposed to be secret, but of course they're quite leaky. And I heard leaks saying, she's sold out to the machines. She thinks machines are going to think. She doesn't belong in an English department. And maybe they were right. It might have been the best thing that ever happened to you. In fact, it was because it sent us to New York City when we lived in New York just rapturously for 40 years. Yes, and uh, where Joe Traub, I know, or knew, you know, he's 
departed now, a wonderful human being. And then again, the other part of the thing in the book, probably not talk about too much, is that the book is also a love story about Pamela and Joe. Joe basically was brought to Columbia to rebuild their computer science department, or to start it from scratch. I don't even start it. Start it. Yeah, but, you know, Columbia was Ivy League, and I, the Ivy Leagues were the last, really, to do computer science formally. And that got you out of Pittsburgh, and if not back to California, at least into the big time. Yeah, it sure did. Yeah, that was. Uh, sound like you lived quite the life in New York, also. Oh, it was a, a wonderful life. What were some of the cultural high points in your mind? Well, we both adored the performing arts. So we were at the opera and we were at the theater and so on and so forth. And, and later, Joe thought we, we should stop being such amateurs at this. So he signed us up for courses at Juilliard for music and courses at the Museum of Modern Art for art. I don't think I would have, but I was really glad he did it. And it was just wonderful. Just wonderful. And of course, our friendships went across all kinds of disciplines because of that. And I, of course, was in various literary circles because I was an officer of Penn, the author's organization, the Freedom to Write, Freedom of Expression, and ran into most of the great and the near great there as far as authors were concerned. And uh, believe me, I was considered really weird writing about this thing called artificial intelligence. Yeah, very, very interesting, but weird. Interesting. And then there were some other kinds of pushback, which I found interesting from your book. The one I found most startling was uh, Arno Penzias, uh, if I got his name right, the Nobel Prize winner from Bell Labs who detected the radio signal remnant from the Big Bang, the famous three-degree Kelvin microwave background. You know, one of the great experimental discoveries of the 20th century. And yet he seemed to be foaming on the topic that computers can't think. Tell us about that. Foaming is just the word. Uh, I guess I can tell this on the air. You can scratch it out. I I, I say absolutely anything. You know me. So go right ahead. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he called me one morning before I was even up. Joe got me up and said, oh, phone for you. It's Arno. We, We knew Arno socially. And uh, (laughs) there is Arno Penzias on the phone. Pamela, I just read this book of yours. And he went on for half an hour telling me why machines could never, ever, ever think and how I had wasted three or four years of my life writing this book and blah, 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 and on and on. And finally, after a half an hour where I, I, I couldn't get a word in edgewise, I finally said to him, Arno, Arno, I know you're a married man. You got me out of bed. I haven't even been to the bathroom yet. <laughs> oh my goodness! I mean, and here's a here's a I him, Jim. <laughs> and here's a giant of science, right? And you would think that this would not, you know, he would not react this way. But but there does seem to be, and you 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 bring these stories up again and again, where people almost feel personally affronted by the idea. You've got it. It they really took it personally, for better or for worse. Yep, that is interesting. And, you know, are these, is it a legacy of the old chain of being, you know, that goes back to the Middle Ages with humans near the top, right below the angels, right? Because <laughs> that's one of the things I've always, you know, frankly loved about AI. I'd love to have some other intelligent entity to talk to besides just people, right? Uh, yeah, isn't that funny? You and I feel the same. I, I would love another mind around. I mean, smarter than me? Fine. Hey, I had friendships with Newell and Simon. I had friendships with McCarthy and Feigenbaum and Minsky. I know that smarter human beings than me exist, and it was always wonderful to be around them. Uh, Smarter machines? Fine. Let's talk. The thing that would be cool would be the alienness of their minds, most likely, right? Yeah. If we really were to achieve artificial general intelligence, I suspect it's relatively unlikely to be a mind very much like a human mind, and that would be interesting. Yeah, and, and I don't even know if that's true. It may be that we don't recognize anything that isn't quite like our minds. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it would be interesting to find out here over the next somewhere between 10 and 200 years. It is interesting how, actually, I I talked to one of the world's leading experts on artificial general intelligence uh, just this week. He actually stopped by and we chatted for a few hours, a guy named Ben Gertzel. In fact, he's the one that coined the expression artificial general intelligence. 
And he was saying that the uh, open AI guys who recently got a billion dollar investment from Microsoft are now claiming that artificial general intelligence, i.e. a human style of intelligence, is less than five years away. Oh, my. <laughs> now, he personally didn't believe it. And uh, he is the leading thinker, in my opinion, on artificial general intelligence. But you know, these are non-trivial people, and they uh, talked Microsoft out of a billion dollars. And Microsoft is not a shabby bunch of thinkers. Or, no, they're not. They're famously hard-ass when it comes to business, right? So I don't know. Maybe it's quicker. Maybe it's even shorter than 10 years. It certainly will be an interesting, a very interesting time. It's an area I follow quite closely. And, you know, some of, I think, frankly, as we were just saying, part of it is just this libido to talk to somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's one of the themes here on the show, probably half of our shows, at least one of the uh, topics I talk with the guests on is the Fermi paradox, which is, hey, where are the aliens, right, out in space? And I think that comes from the same motivation. Many of us Mm -hmm. hope we can find aliens just so we can talk to them, see what they know. Mm -hmm. And we don't, feel particularly threatened by them, you know, hey, let's sit down and have a beer together. Though maybe we should. In fact, uh, one of the arguments right now is the uh, discussion around METI. There's SETI, which is a search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which has been going on for 60 years. In fact, uh, one of our recent guests on the show was Jill Tarter, the world's uh, historical leading researcher in search for terrestrial intelligence. She's now retired, but we had a wonderful, wonderful talk about the search. And then there's METI, the messaging to extraterrestrial intelligence, which is hugely controversial. You know, people like uh, uh, Hawking, you know, he, he says, you know, this is the stupidest thing we could possibly do, which is to yell to the universe, we're here, come eat us. Time will tell, right? Well, he felt the same way about AI. So what can you say? Yeah, we'll, we'll revisit that one, this, uh, this idea of summoning the demon. Before we do that, one more reach out into this uh, two cultures theme. Another book you wrote, which I did not know you had wrote, but I'm going to go back to get it and read it, is Aaron's Code. Mm, yeah. Which, uh, you know, in short, is the story about an artist who used computers to generate art. Tell us about that. Well, not computers so much because there's a lot of computer-generated art these days. And there was even as he, well, not so much as he began, but there's certainly, it, it existed. Anything that could be scanned and printed on a plotter was counted as art in those days. And Harold Cohen, the artist we're talking about, wanted to know what the decision process of an artist was. And since he knew about these cognitive scientists who were thinking about modeling human thought, could he model the thought of an artist, the thinking processes? And so that was really his reason for doing it. He didn't particularly want to make art that way. He wanted to model the process that an artist goes through when he makes an image. Uh, well, that's putting it, you know, in a capsule form, but that was what he did. And I look now at tons of computer-generated art, and I celebrate it. I think it's wonderful. The computer has really become a wonderful medium for art. But nobody, as far as I can see, has done what Harold did, which is to say, let me sit down and model my own artistic making, art-making behavior. And that's what he did. Sound like it'd be a great project for a CMU graduate student to go find a really good and thoughtful artist and essentially be a domain expert and create an expert system for art. And using today's modern tools, I'm sure they could accomplish a heck of a lot more. They might be able to. For all I know, someone's doing it. So anyway, back to the second two cultures theme. Uh, I imagine there must have been some kickback from the artistic community about both Harold and you writing about it. Uh, strangely enough, no. Interesting. The reason why is nobody paid any attention to it. Okay. They had no idea what I was talking about. It just fell into the void. Interesting. So the humanities, the writing people, they took offense and affront, but the artists were so far out in their own world, they just took no notice of it. Yes, exactly right. And, you know, partly it was my fault because I didn't have the vocabulary for explaining what Harold was doing until I got to the Santa Fe Institute. And there was this wonderful vocabulary all laid out for me. 
well, I just published the book. I couldn't unwrite the book. So uh, too bad. Yeah. If I'd known that, it would have been a different book. Interesting. I'll have to go back and read it. It just sounds like an interesting topic. You know, next topic, which you alluded to a little bit earlier, which is concerns about artificial intelligence. You know, an interesting book I read, I don't know, when it came out was uh, Tegmark's Life 3.0. Yeah. where he talks about biological evolution, cultural evolution, technological evolution, and talks about the singularity and you know the risks that go with it. Of course, there are people more extreme than Tegmark. He's pretty thoughtful and balanced. But you have people like Bostrom and Elon Musk and others who are absolutely convinced, or at least they say that they're absolutely convinced that, hey, we got to slow down, we got to stop. We're summoning the demon. Uh, you've talked a little bit about this in the book. What do you think about this? Uh, <laughs> Let me say my own views first. My own view is that AI is probably one of the most powerful sciences slash technologies to come along in human history. A powerful science slash technology has the potential to do great good, and it has the potential to do great harm. So you can swing on one side or the other and say, nah, it'll be great. Or you can take the Elon Musk, uh, et cetera, view. It's terrible and we've got to stop. I don't take, well, no, I hold both views, actually. Contradictory though they may be. And this is what human intelligence is about, is being able to hold contradictory ideas in your head. It could be horrible. It could be fabulous. And unless we're careful, it could be very destructive. Yeah, it certainly seems it will be disruptive. Whether it will be destructive, I think I'm with you, is an open question. And, and perhaps a lot of it's going to be based on the choices that we make. In the short term, there's two roads which are interesting. One good and one not so good. One is where if indeed many jobs are filled by robots and AIs, if we're wise, this could be a new era of leisure, right? We could not be working 50 and 55 hour weeks. We could actually be working on things that are really meaningful, self-actualization, working on art, working on our hobbies, working on our relationships, working in our communities. And that would be a wonderful outcome from the replacement of a fair amount of work, but it would require some new institutional arrangements like these universal basic income ideas that are being talked about right now. I think it's quite interesting that Andrew Yang is talking about it at the level of the presidential primaries. And not, not getting laughed off the stage. And last night, not at all. The other people were talking about it for the first time and saying, hmm, this might be a good idea. And whether that's exactly the right form, but at least that's the idea. Now, the, the other side, the bad side, what I'd call the neo-feudalist side, is if it turns out these AIs, uh, most of the values captured by a small number of plutocrats and are used to just make ever wider the gap between the working people of the world and the capitalists, then this will be a very bad thing. People will be forced down to very marginal jobs, mostly personal service, cleaning toilets, giving massages, whatever, to make a living while a tiny percentage, you know, the 0.01% are basically reaping all the benefits of this amazing increase in productivity. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you think about it, it's up to us, the people, to insist that our democratic processes make this short-term productivity gain and replacement of work work for everybody. But if we don't, it won't. And I think so people need to be very take this very seriously when they think about their political decisions going forward. I mean, doesn't that make a lot of sense? It makes perfect sense to me. I like to divide up into work and tasks. The world has lots and lots of tasks that go undone because people are busy making a living. And a lot of that making of the living is busy work. It's tap dancing, as a friend of mine calls it. And it's really not very gratifying as for human beings. If we let human beings loose on the tasks that needed to be done and compensate them for those very important tasks, like looking after children, looking after the elderly, so on and so forth. Wow, what a world this could be. 
Yep, and Andrew Yang made that point. He, he gave the example of his wife who stays home to take care of their two children, one of whom is autistic, right? And that number, that real work, does not appear in our GDP, and yet it's real work that adds tremendous value to the lives of real people. Yes, exactly right. And you can multiply that many times. Yeah, and we'll see if we are wise enough to uh, steer our, our economy and our politics in that direction. We shall see. Uh, this next election will be quite interesting. To the next you know, level of risk that people talk about, you know, one that's gotten a lot of attention, I, I started to laughingly call the emperor paper clips, you know, the example that somebody accidentally tells the world's first artificial general intelligence to maximize the output of a paperclip factory. And this AI takes it literally and decides to kill all the people and convert their uh, material into material to make paperclips, eventually turn the earth into paperclips, invent interstellar rockets so it can go and turn all the stars into paperclips. You know, this is the cartoon version of the artificial general intelligence run amok. And, you know, there is some risk in that area, though I suspect it may be less than people think because they anthropomorphize AIs all the way back to Eliza, right? They think that they're more human than they are. And there's no reason, unless it's built in, that a computer ought to have a will for power, for instance, you know, or the equivalent even of an ego. But one could accidentally make it happen. But before the emperor paperclips becomes a problem, I'm much more concerned about bad people armed with powerful but sub-AGI, artificial general intelligence AIs, and ones that come to mind very strikingly is China. You know, it strikes me that if we continue on the road we're on, the Chinese are going to be inventing something new, very substantially based on AI, which is a dictatorship of the pervasiveness and power that George Orwell, even with his amazing imagination, could never have conceived. And uh, this is going to be a very scary thing. It is indeed. And I think you're quite right. I would like to say we've had a literary warning. It was called The a Sorcerer's Apprentice. Remember that story where yep. the sorcerer leaves somebody to get, I think, water from the well, wasn't it? Anyway, we know this can happen. We can't let it happen. We mustn't let it happen. And the fact that a very different culture with very different ideals is coming up fast in the AI field. It should give us pause. Yeah. I was uh, very pleased to see that you came down on the side of, of course, people in the United States need to be working on AI for national defense. If I read you correctly. You did. Because, you know, this is a, a current big bugaboo out in Silicon Valley, you know, people at Google saying, we don't want to work on defense, right? And they've actually chosen not to compete for some contracts and not renew to others, uh, while other players, Microsoft and Amazon in particular, have been quite straightforward at making their expertise available to our military. And, in, you know, particularly with China and to a lesser degree, Russia, you know, potentially in a position to try to achieve a dominant position through their work in AI, it strikes me as exceedingly foolish for us to unilaterally disarm. Jim, I am not a pacifist. I am here on this earth because people I will never know sacrifice their lives for me. That's the story of my mother uh, with a tarpaulin between her and the night giving birth to me. People were up in the sky trying to protect her. It would be immensely hypocritical of me to say, oh, that's okay, let's be pacifists. No, I can't. And this is, this is not a world where we can be. At the same time, I really understand how uh, grievous it feels that something you do might be used in a way that you so disagree with. I, I understand that. I sympathize with it. But for, in my view, I want the smartest people and the smartest machines uh, on my side, please. Yep, I'm 100% with you. And uh, you know, I think our opinion is perhaps a minority opinion amongst the Silicon Valleyites. But Hey, I've been a minority for a long, most of my life. It's okay. <laughs> I hear that. And I want to pivot a little bit to something else, another theme that was woven through your book, which is feminism. You know, there's quite a lot about feminism here and there throughout the book. And, you know, I've 
said more than once that it's my personal view that when the historians look back from 2000 years in the future and look at the 20th century, they're not going to say that World War II was the most significant thing, nor the atomic weapon or landing a man on the moon or the internet, uh, but rather the beginnings of the overthrow of the patriarchy, and which I put approximately at 1975, where it uh, finally started to get momentum. But you've lived that life. I mean, you're a bit older than I am. We're both old, goddammit. But you go back a few more years to where there was just the most blatant kinds of grotesque sexism. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember reading the uh, memoir of one of my heroes, Sandra Day O'Connor. And here she was, a top graduate of the Stanford Law School, who had to take a job as a secretary because no one would hire her as a lawyer. I mean, what the hell? Right? That sort of thing was gone by the time I graduated from college in 75. Not to say that there still wasn't a vast amount of sexism in the patriarchy, but at least that kind of the, the most grotesque in your face, unapologetic sort was over. Tell me a little bit about your journeys with feminism. <laughs> where, where it's headed? Where are we? Uh, well, good question. Yeah, you know, when you're in the middle of the revolution, it's really hard to tell where things are going. Yes, I got out of college with a degree from a decent university, the University of California at Berkeley, and nobody wanted to know that. They wanted to know how fast I could type. So any job I went for, was always based on how fast I could type. And I tried and tried to get out of that mindset, and I couldn't, until finally I went to work at Stanford for Ed Feigenbaum. And what do you know? Yeah, he wanted me to type. I was his assistant. Somebody had to write the letters. But he also was really eager for me to know what was going on and sent me around from place to place on the campus so I would learn about computing uh, in general, artificial intelligence in particular. And it was from that that I, I left that job and went to graduate school. Once in graduate school and out of graduate school, I entered a slightly different world. It had changed socially, and it had changed uh, for me because I had now two degrees. No, those were very bad days, and they were days of long standing. I can't imagine when it was different. I look back in history and you just see the patriarchy is in full swing and nobody even questions it, or very few people question it. So I realized, no, I mean, that's just giving me too much credit. Somewhere along the way, very late in my romance with artificial intelligence, I realized that one of the things that made me so fascinated by it was that it would be a kind of intelligence that wasn't, well, a white male, shall I say, it would be different. Now, that was a very naive view of how AI is created, but that was what I hoped for, that this intelligence would step away from the patriarchy and say, you're going about it all wrong. This is a better way. I didn't know that consciously until ah, 20, 30 years into, into my romance with AI. But there it is, and what do you know? It may happen. Meanwhile, uh, it has taken some very brave women to stand up and say, this is wrong. You can't treat me this way. You mustn't treat me this way, and I'm not going to be quiet about it. Yeah, that's one, one of the greatest things that happened, particularly in the West, in the last quarter of the 20th century was finally women stood up and said, we're not taking it anymore, and at least some men supported that. And it took both, right? I was married to a man who was absolutely feminist. Uh, that's one of the reasons the marriage lasted as long as it did. We were married for almost half a century. And he was so supportive of everything I did. If, if anything, more than supportive. I used to laugh. Well, you're like my stage mother. Come on, give me a break. But no, he was so eager for me to have the kind of recognition he thought I deserved. It was wonderful. And he had his own very important career in science and academic administration. So it wasn't that he was making a substitute of me. He just didn't think it was fair. Now, it's great. You know, I was fortunate, especially in having grown up in the 50s and early 60s, that my parents, despite being uneducated, working class uh, type folks, had a remarkably egalitarian marriage. You know, if I suppose you woke my father up at three o'clock in the morning and said, hey, Herbie, uh, are you head of the household? He might have said yes, but they never acted that way. Every decision they made was collective. 
My mother was always in charge of finance, doing the taxes, uh, dealing with bankers, et cetera. Because why? Because she was a shitload smarter on things quantitative than he was. And he was absolutely happy to uh, have her do it. And as I said, never saw them make any decision of any sort other than jointly. And that was actually a very good influence on my own life. I think I came to appreciate the fact that the patriarchy was an idiotic idea uh, earlier than some. Perhaps so. I, I can't say I was raised in such a family. In fact, my father was an old-fashioned European patriarch, and as a consequence, he raised two warrior daughters. I mean, we're both warriors. Yet he was very proud of us, very happy with us. So there you go. That's, that's interesting. And, and of course, you know, the world has made a fair amount of progress since. You know, one of, you know some of the things that are very encouraging is that Almost 60% of college graduates are now women, even at the most elite professional programs, Harvard Law, the leading medical schools, almost exactly 50-50 membership in these prestigious graduate programs and professional programs, which tend to be gateways to the professions and into elite positions in our society. But interestingly, one area where this is not true is in AI or computer science in general. Uh, Computer science in general, I would say, yes, it's... um... NYU did a study and has the numbers, perhaps 15% of papers written and so on and so forth, talks given are written by women in AI. And it shouldn't be 15, it should be 50. You you think it really should be 50? Why not? I wonder. It's interesting that Harvard Law and you know, the Harvard Business School and Johns Hopkins, you know, they're 50-50 these days. Right. But maybe there are enough differences between men and women that when given full freedom and no longer constrained by the patriarchy, for whatever reason, they make different career choices. And the, you know, the example that's thrown out, I'm not sure it's quite compelling, but it's certainly indicative is that in Sweden, which is probably the most gender egalitarian society that's ever existed on earth, the percentage of men in engineering is actually higher than it is in the United States. And the percentage of women in nursing is actually higher than it is in the United States. So even once the the bridle of the patriarchy is thrown off, it may well be possible that the genders have different things that they're interested in or maybe that they're good at. It's at least possible. It's at least possible, but we won't know for 100 years. It took that long to just get rid of all the, the excess nonsense that has pervaded for millennia. Was there any reason one would think there would be more nonsense in computer science than, say, in law or medicine? Uh, <laughs> I, I did a study on that, actually on Silicon Valley, a preliminary study for the National Science Foundation a few years ago with, with a friend and a partner. And what we discovered was that men really made it hard for women to be in that field, just at them in every way possible, in every unpleasant way possible. I don't mean sexual harassment. I mean, you know, diminishing them, denigrating them in every way possible. And I know women of my generation who said, who needs this? You know, I'll go do something else. There's a a woman in my life, a a middle-aged woman now, who got a, a CS degree from one of the top universities, came out, was doing great, until she ran up against this social stuff in computing. And she was gradually funneled into human resources and things like that. And she looked at me one day and she said, didn't I fight hard enough? And I said, it has nothing to do with you personally. It's systemic. You need millions to fight hard enough, not just you. Yeah, we shall see. Certainly, one could hope to get rid of anything like that, where there is opposition to talented women coming into a field. You know, it won't happen overnight. As you said, I don't know if it'll be a hundred years, but I hope it's shorter than that, but it's it's every year, hopefully getting a little better. And then we'll see, are there, you know, just sort of built in differences between men and women and what they're interested in, or has it been something else? Well, I better click a continuum. There are people who are really good at raising kids, and they are mostly, maybe, well, I don't know, mostly women. You know, I elected not to have children. I just decided I'd rather be a full-time writer. And the number of women who came to me and said, you know, I love my kids. 
but if I had it to do over again, I'd have done what you did. Well, that was surprising. I really thought I was a little island all by myself. Uh Uh-uh. But, you know, it's so ingrained in us that the women will raise, have and raise the children that um, maybe we need to think about that a little more. Yeah, I think it will, particularly on that one, it's going to take more time. And I do think the most important first step, and which we've now mostly taken, is that either gender should be able to do whatever they want even if it's extremely low probability uh, historically. For instance, you know, probably the last legal sexism was finally repealed in the United States in the last couple of years, uh, which is that women are now able to be infantry officers in the Marine Corps, right? That's a brutal job that requires great physical strength, a murderous intent, and a bunch of other things, which at least historically and culturally haven't been highly associated with what women like to do. But nonetheless, as soon as they opened the doors, a bunch of women raised their hand, said, yeah, I'd like to bury a Marine Corps infantry officer. And they've gone through you know, the schools and a fair percentage of them have succeeded and qualified. And they're now you know, officers in the Marine Corps, leading men and women in the mud, killing people when necessary, et cetera. And even if it turns out that it's never more than three or 4%, strikes me as morally absolutely essential that anyone who wants to do something like that be able to do so. Couldn't agree more. But on the other hand, it wouldn't bother me or surprise me, frankly, if only a very small percentage of women actually want to do it. So anyway, you know, you live through kind of the big piece of this story, which is by no means ended yet. It'd be very interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple of generations. Yeah, I see it with young girls. I see, you know, they have no idea what I'm talking about. And for that, I say, thank God, you should not know what this was like. It was awful. You know, classified ads, jobs for women, jobs for men, all that stuff. And I would like to say that the last legal barrier has not been breached. And that is we don't have an equal rights amendment. That is annoying. That's at least a negative hole that needs to be fixed. It amazes me that that has not been reintroduced. You know, that would be relatively, well, I don't know. But I absolutely agree with you that the equal rights amendment needs to be enacted as a catch-all for non-necessarily legislative discrimination. You know, the Marine Corps ban on women officers was a positive block on women, but the Equal Rights Amendment would provide a mechanism to get rid of a bunch of uh, less codified, but still real impediments on uh, women's ability to move forward in the world, you know, perhaps most famously on uh, equal pay for equal work. For example. Yeah, yes, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I, uh, you know, I hope we as a society continue to do that work. Well, Pamela, this has been great. It's been everything I was hoping it would be. And I'd like to repeat again to the audience, uh, you should read this book, Pamela's new book, This Could Be Important, My Life with the Artificial Intelligentsia. You'll enjoy it. If you like a good read, you'll learn something and it will by no means be a waste of time. Thanks very much, Jim. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.